The title of this sermon is The Word from the Cross. And my text, Luke 14, 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It is Good Friday, the day Jesus died on a Roman cross, repudiated by the religious leaders of his people. It is our task and our privilege to sit beneath that cross in our imaginations and remember what he has done for us on this day. But more than just remember him, I think we should invite him to speak to us from that cross. What would he say to us today about his cross? What is the word from the cross? There were, in fact, seven words spoken by Jesus from the cross. And I want to begin by mining each statement, though not in their traditional order, to discover what Jesus is saying about the cross as he hung there dying. He said, I thirst. And they brought him soured wine. His pain was real and his suffering acute. I will spare us an account of the physiology of crucifixion, but trust me, it is one of the most painful and humiliating ways mankind has devised to kill one another. And crucifixion really happened to Jesus. The Quran is wrong in teaching that a substitute took his place on the cross because crucifixion was no way for a true prophet to die. He thirsted and said so, letting his need be known, and died from loss of blood, lack of oxygen, and heart failure. Earlier, he said to his mother Mary and the beloved disciple, probably John, who were the only ones of all his followers standing near enough to be spoken to, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Despite the extremity of his pain and weakness, he still provided for his dependents. At the beginning of his crucifixion, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The burden of sin that Jesus bore on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world surely included the disbelief and rejection of the Jewish religious leaders and the injustice and craven complicity of the Roman authorities. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, real forgiveness requires two things on the part of the forgiver. First, the giving up of the right to retaliate, to punish. And second, instead, taking on yourself, bearing the consequences of the wrong done against you by the wrongdoer. A holy God only forgives by taking on himself the consequences of our sin. As St. Paul puts it, writing to the Corinthians, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus, from his cross, can ask his Father to forgive his persecutors. And this is why, as the sin of the world focuses on him, separating him from his Father, and breaking for the first time his communion with God, he cries out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin separates us from God and leads eventually to death. So Jesus is separated by bearing our sin from his Father and dies. This is what theologians call the atonement. God in Christ taking upon himself the consequences of our sin in order that we might be forgiven and dying in the effort. This atonement is the basis for the good news Jesus proclaims to the penitent thief. Remember, he had called out to Jesus, confessing his own sin, acknowledging Jesus as king, and begging to be a part of his kingdom. And this commitment is enough for Jesus to respond from the cross, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Near the end, when Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. He might seem to be despairing as one who has lost all hope with his life ebbing away. But if we understand what happened on the cross, what really happened, it is finished is rather a cry of triumph, welcoming the approach of death, and hopeful that he has accomplished all that needed to be done and endured on the cross, atonement leading to forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And in that hope, Jesus' seven words from the cross conclude with Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31 continues, Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth, but in truth, Jesus needs no redemption, for he is the Redeemer. Or maybe not. He simply and completely entrusts himself in this moment to his Father and breathes his last, hoping that death and corruption are not his end and that God will vindicate him. In the words of Isaiah, when his, that is the suffering servant's soul, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Will that promise be fulfilled for Jesus? Finally, consider what Jesus did not say from the cross. He was mocked and taunted and jeered at. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? But he spoke not a word of threat or curse or condemnation. He was silent as a lamb before its shearing. So what then is the word from the cross? Is it one of these statements or all seven of them? I think not. Remember that Jesus eternally bears 
the marks of his crucifixion, even in heavenly glory, the wounds in his hands and feet and side, and perhaps even the scars on his brow from the crown of thorns. Remember that the atoning power of the cross continues forever as the basis for his heavenly intercession for us. So from the cross today, I think Jesus says, I'm on my cross. Are you on yours? That's the word from the cross. How you think? Could Jesus say such a thing to us, the faithful, gathered to honor him on this holiest of days, Good Friday? Consider our text. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And later on, when Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and been rebuked by Jesus for denying that Jesus will suffer many things and be killed in Jerusalem, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny or disown himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He continues, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. We often speak of following Jesus in terms of becoming more like him in our character and participating in his church, the body of Christ. But the clear implication of these verses is that following him is more than that. Why do we take up our cross? Because we too are condemned to die. And where do we follow Jesus? To the place of the skull, Golgotha, to die. Not for most Christians to die literally, although that seems to be an increasing possibility in a world of radical Islamic terrorism. Ask our brothers and sisters in Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Pakistan. But for all of us as Christians, the cross cancels the I in us and empowers us to live like Jesus, a life wholly surrendered to the Father's will. This is why he is saying, I think, I am on my cross because his life is still entirely surrendered to God. Long before Paul died by a Roman sword, he wrote to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And later in the same letter, Paul writes, May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So you and I, however our tranquil our lives may be, are called to live not for ourselves, but for Christ who lives in us through the Holy Spirit. In our baptism, the old man, the autonomous self, was symbolically drowned so that the new creation in Christ could emerge. It is a commitment that will bring us suffering, if not, hopefully, martyrdom. 
family who criticize us, old friends who drop us, supervisors who view us as too religious and pass us over for promotion. But Peter and James and Paul all urge us to rejoice in our sufferings. And Jesus, in the final beatitude of the Sermon on the Mount, promised, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Consider again Jesus' words from the cross as a guide to the crucified life. First, ask for help when you suffer. Jesus did when he said, I thirst, and that is what his church is for. Second, take care of your dependents. As Jesus took care of his mother, your own problems are not an excuse to abandon this responsibility. Third, proclaim the good news of salvation through the atoning work of Jesus to anyone who responds to your lifestyle and witness, as Jesus did to the penitent thief. Fourth, intercede for an ignorant and obdurate world, asking for God's forgiveness and mercy, and remembering our Lord's teaching that we may not ask for forgiveness for ourselves or others unless we practice forgiveness ourselves. Fifth, lead a purposeful life, asking Jesus to show you your areas of ministry and how to exercise the gifts he has given you in these areas so that at the end of your life, you can say with Jesus, it is finished. And sixth, finally commit yourself into God's hands in life and in death, trusting him for your vindication. Above all, do not answer back, threaten, rebut, and insult, however you may be vilified. Live like this, in complete surrender to God, and you will be on your cross daily alongside the crucified one. Let us give Peter the last word from his first letter. He wrote, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So this, friends, I think, is the word of Jesus from the cross. I'm on my cross. Are you on yours? Amen.